Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He goes by Recluse. He just published a book. Full title is The Art, The Secret History of Psy War, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, book one. So it's intended to be a three-book series. And I had him on my show back three years ago. We covered Strange Tales of the Parapolitical. I'll put a link to that interview. I've also done a show with him. We talked about Order of Nine Angles. But he also is just a great researcher in general. He has a really important uh, <coughs> blog that uh, is titled Vice Up. So I'll put a link to that as well. It keeps popping up. <coughs> Sorry, I talked for two hours this morning. So my throat, throat's a little raspy. And then also a great podcast, The Farm. And I just saw uh, Dr. Future Bennett was on your most recent episode. So I'll have to listen to that. But uh, Bennett's been on my show like three or four times. That was one of my first interviews, actually, when I first published my book in 2010 was with uh, Mike Bennett as Dr. Uh, Future Quake. Future Quake is what it was. Oh, yeah. Dr. Future, are, Dr. Future are, he's a uh, national treasure. That's great. Yeah, it really is. So, But this book is really fascinating. I've done some research on Lansdale. He pops up in some of the stuff that happened with JFK. And it was I, I didn't know how it was his close association, so I learned a lot reading through this book. So you also go by uh, Stephen, right? So yes, Stephen, maybe for people who haven't heard your background or uh, all your research, maybe you can just do an overview and what led you up to putting together this book, The Art. Uh, well, I've been uh, doing this now for about 10 years. I started Vise Up in 2010. Uh, that went on for uh, well over a decade. I don't really uh, update the website as much anymore. Uh, I believe it was right at the end of 2019, I got into podcasting. I uh, started working with Frank Zero on the farm, which is a podcast I think he had started around 2015. And then I kind of uh, gradually became the main uh, host for it. Uh, and then I started writing books, did Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, did a book on uh, Epstein, well, kind of leading up to the circles around Epstein called A Special Relationship and uh, this most recent one. Um, it was quite a journey just putting this thing together. Uh, it's The genesis was about three and a half years ago. And it was intended to be just a basic exploration of the players behind QAnon. Uh, it subsequently morphed into much more than that as I started to look deeper into the subject and try to trace back the origins of it. Um, eventually, it more or less led me all the way across the country. I'm uh, fairly close to Washington, D.C. I ended up going out to Stanford to go to Hoover to look at uh, Lansdale's documents and other figures. Also uh, made a good use of the Stanford Library. I ended up going to the, oh gosh, the Carlisle Barracks in um Oh, it's in Pennsylvania. I can't remember the town now off the top of my head. But um, I ended up going through quite a few private collections searching for all this stuff. So it was very much a, um, a kind of journey of exploration, if you will. Um, and it was definitely a trip getting to go to the uh, storied Hoover Institute. Uh, you know, you got to go in and do like the whole photo ID thing for that as well. And um, it was quite fitting because Stanford ended up becoming such a big part of the story in the first book. So it was also really um, nice to actually be on the campus physically to kind of see some of the sites there. Um, they took us up actually into the, what was it, the clock tower to Hoover, where you get a phenomenal view of the campus. I got to see like the uh, large hydrogen collider they have there that nobody really talks about. And um, unfortunately, I was not able to go to the church where Arliss Perry was murdered in. I think it was actually closed that day for a wedding or something to that effect. But um, the little of it I could see outside was quite striking. And then, of course, there's the Stanford Medical Facility, which appears to have a lot of swastikas, essentially, like on the outside of the building. Uh, so it's it's an interesting place, to put it mildly, and was uh, really quite fitting for what I was writing. The, uh, the, the Memorial Church is part of the original courtyard of Stanford. So when they first built it, that was it. That was kind of the centerpiece, and it expanded. Incredible expansion outside of there. But if you get back there, make sure you go to the... Uh, Sculpture garden at the museum there because there's a couple pieces by Rodin there that are original. Oh, yeah. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty cool. But uh, so you've been, yeah, you've seen documents and things that other people haven't, right? Like you've been, I mean, those are not accessible online or anything, right? Yeah, correct. That was part of the reason why we had to go there and go through those. And um, the other collections that I went uh, through at Hoover and Stanford that were really a gold member, the ones for the two Termans, uh, Lewis Terman and Fred Terman. 
um, both of whom were long connected to the university. Of course, uh, Fred Terman is basically uh, the de facto father of Silicon Valley. He was the guy who really built Stanford up as a major research institute. And fittingly, he did a lot of this with funding that was primarily uh, provided by the U.S. Navy. Uh, this is another thing a lot of people don't realize about Stanford, but it was almost totally... Uh, turned into a major uh, university in the post-war years by defense funding, which was part of the story that I wanted to get into. And then, of course, there's Fred's father, Lewis Terman. He's a guy that I'm going to be writing about a lot more in the second book. But uh, he was effectively the father of the modern uh, gifted program, uh, which is quite intriguing. He also did the longest uh, longevity study on his gifted kids. I think that's ever been attempted in psychology. It actually continued after Terman died and I think effectively followed all of the kids for their entire lives, um, even ended up studying some of their children. Uh, so it's really a fascinating subject because the gifted program was really based in a military program that Terman had worked in during World War One, the Army Alpha program. Uh, which essentially was administering intelligence tests to all the enlisted men to see, you know, who was going to be an officer and then who would end up being cannon fodder. So you took the alpha test. If you did not do well in that, you took the army beta test. And then if you did not do well in that, there were other ones beyond that. So uh, this was later applied to the gifted program in the United States and is a big part of why in the early days it was just absolutely steeped in eugenics. And what's up to YouTube, Graham? Um, so again, this is a really big part of the story that I'm going to get into in the second book, but you do have this sort of odd lineage with Lewis Terman on the one hand, and then his uh, son, Fred, the engineer, who is quite a big figure in the first book. And Fred, as far as I can tell, and this was one of the big revelations that came from going through these records, really seems to have been the architect of the United States's I don't know what you would call it, like psychotronic or non-lethal weapon program. And this goes all the way back to the Second World War, where he oversaw the uh, Radio Research Laboratory, which was an offshoot of the Rad Lab. But it was significantly more classified. And to this day, we still don't know a lot about it. But I was able to find uh, some of his documents in his papers where there's references to, you know, bouncing uh, beams off the ionosphere of basically developing these early you know, kind of laser weapons, things of that nature. And it seems clear that this was a big part of what they were doing, of developing technologies that would later be used with HARP or some of the theorized microwave weapons that are now part of the non-lethal weapon arsenal. And all of this was really playing out in Stanford since the end of the Second World War. And it's something that's um, just been almost totally overlooked by everyone. So that yeah, was fascinating. And you have to include SRI in that, too. So a lot of forward thinking, a lot of thinking outside the box happening around Stanford Terman. And there was a little hotbed of eugenics there, too. Uh, I think after World War One, there were a number of other players, Terman, Jordan, um, Shockley, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, it even continued with Shockley. In fact, yeah, Fred Terman was a big part of bringing Shockley in there. And you could really argue that it never totally ended. I mean, just look at Peter Thiel. I mean, that's another, you know, Stanford graduate right there. So they call it a different name now. It's genomics. So they yeah, rebranded yeah. uh, the eugenics thing. Yeah, Thiel, you're right. It's interesting that he pops up. But I mean, yeah, so there's a lot of research to be done there. Yeah, I mean, there absolutely is. I mean, this is a very deep rabbit hole. It's something that I am uh, going to definitely explore more in the second book. But to give you guys sort of a you know a preview of why this is so crucial, which is something I think your listeners will um, appreciate, is uh, look at one of Lewis Terman's prize students. In fact, arguably, uh, it was his prize student. It was a, a young woman, a young girl who went into the gifted program, I think, when she was 13 and ended up at Stanford when she was around 17 or 18. Her name was uh, Betty Ford Aquino. Uh, she would do some time in Nazi Germany during the Second World War, and she would eventually have a son called Colonel Michael Aquino, uh, who would have, in fact, been studied as part of Lewis Terman's gifted program for pretty much his entire life. And this is especially intriguing when you consider Aquino's later links to psychotronic and non-lethal weapons, when you consider that um, his mother's good friend and longtime patron, Lewis Terman's son, just happened to be the you know, major force driving this. 
So wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. Were you able to find out who the father of Aquino was? That seems to be an open question. Uh, no, no. I actually ended up, uh, I got actually Betty Ford's papers uh, from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Uh, there didn't turn out to be many things in there about um, her, the potential genealogy, but there was certainly some interesting stuff in there, especially in regards to the role that she actually played later on in redesigning San Francisco. Uh, which really went through a major urban renovation around the late 50s, early 1960s. And she was actually a huge part of that. Uh, and she also was taking a lot of regular trips to Provo, Utah, with Michael throughout this uh, period around the 50s and 60s, which is really interesting when you look at the recent claims coming out of Provo, i.e. David Lee Hamlin and all the SRA claims with the Levitt family and what have you. Um, but there's been a lot of rumblings of that stuff happening in Provo for a very long time. So very interesting that uh, young Michael Aquino spent a lot of time there. That is interesting. I mean, the, the foundation of the Mormon church, the real foundation is a lot more salacious than people know. Joseph Smith, they don't know how many kids he really had. They think it's like 14 or 15, but he would pull the stunt where, I mean, it's a tangent, but he would pull the stunt where he would take somebody's wife and they would become a celestial bride, but it would only last yeah. for a couple of days. And then he'd just send them back. It was unbelievable. <clears throat> but those, these are true stories. The true stories of Joseph Smith is really incredible. So it's not surprising that they're out there. But she was, I think she was involved in kind of like Northern Mill Valley or something. Uh, uh, Betty Ford Aquino, like she, I think she was kind of a bigwig, if I remember correct. I remember researching her, and she was noted in the papers. Like you can go back and read about her in local papers back then of her early graduation and things like that. Did you ever come across anything like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I saw that because, yeah, she was really hyped up when she was a part of Terman's uh, uh, gifted program. And, of course, she wrote all of those poems, too. That was, like, really her big thing when she was a teenager going into her early 20s. Um, many of them would had quite uh, robust pagan themes in them as well that I would add a lot of the use of Celtic imagery and those types of things. But, yeah, she was described as being sort of a part of the aristocracy around San Francisco. I mean, she knew, like, the Crocker family. Family, the Stanford family itself. So um, Michael Aquino certainly came from a more money background than a lot of people realize. Interesting. Yeah, I, that's that is he never really talked about it in his writings or the writings that I read of his kind of uh, lineage and stuff like that. But yeah, for people who don't know, the founding of the Pacific Railroad was Stanford, Crocker, Fairmont, and there was one other guy, but those oh, were it was, big it was a Harriman, wasn't it? Or Herman, was it? That sounds right. Yeah. So those were like the big ones. They were named all around the Bay Area, Sacramento. That area. there was Crocker Bank, the Fairmont mm -hmm. Hotel for people who've been to San Francisco, and of course Stanford Leland. And these guys were all these guys were all tied in with Skull and Bones as well, uh, or not? Excuse me, a Freudian slip there. Um, the Bohemian Club. Bohemian, right. um, but see, that was another interesting thing that I came up with in a lot of the research. But actually, a huge chunk of the faculty of Stanford were parts of uh, the Bohemian Club in the early days. In fact, I think they had their own uh, cabin at the Grove for many years. But Fred Terman was also definitely a member of the Bohemian Club, and uh, most likely his father was as well. So again, you can kind of see this intersection between this sort of unofficial aristocracy of San Francisco and these kind of elite orders as well. There is kind of an aristocracy in San Francisco, and the Bohemian Club is part of it. It's literally on a street corner. The club is in downtown, close to the financial district yeah. in downtown San Francisco, and then the Grove is up in Northern California in the North Bay area. But the club is very swanky. I've been in there. I, I lived on that same street. I lived on, um, oh, I got to remember it, but it was farther up on Knob Hill back when I got out of college. But it's right next to the Olympic Club, so it would be like the local sure. club. So the kids who came from St. Ignatius, which was the Jesuit prep school, when they graduated, they all would join the, the Olympic Club. And I think that that's where Newsom was. So Newsom went that route. So they people who were close to the Olympic Club would be very familiar with the Bohemian Club and would probably want to get find some entree to get in there. 
Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it's just, it's such an aristocratic place in San Francisco because that was really the repository for a lot of the, you know, the old Yankee blue blood families. So I think that's one of the big reasons why you see some of those groups like Bohemian, uh, the Bohemian Club really emerging as a major presence there from early on. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's quite a place. That's for it's sure. a place. Yeah, look up the Pacific and Union Club, and then right across, it's right on top of Knob Hill. So it's the Fairmont, the Pacific and Union Club, which nobody even knows about. And then right across that is the biggest Masonic temple I've ever seen, bigger than the one that's in um, D.C. It's oh really? Temple. Yeah, it has a Boaz and Joshing, uh, like two stories high. It's it's nice. it's a it's a wonderment of architecture. I think it's literally right up the street. From the Bohemian Club, maybe I'll have to do an occult walkthrough of San Francisco for people because I lived right there, and uh, I used to see how they just marvel at the at the. I'm not a Mason, but marvel at the masonry involved in the Masonic Center. It's it's amazing. It's just incredible. They always Let's see seem if I can to pull it up. They always seem to put this stuff like in the same areas. Like with DC, it's kind of the same thing where you've got like the big Scottish Rite temple you're talking about. And then I think a little ways down the street, you've got the uh, the L. Ron Hubbard building, which was the first Church of Scientology building. Um, yeah, gosh, I think a couple of blocks from there, there's like the Society of Cincinnati headquarters all sort of like intersected around Embassy Road. Boot. Oh, and the big Shriner building, too. That's another kind of gnarly one. Uh but um, anyway, not to get too sidetracked here with uh, some of the mystical architecture. So, yeah, another big guy that I went to uh, through the archives was Lansdale, which, again, was just such a uh, revelation, seeing all the all the groups and so forth that he was in contact with, in addition to a lot of the other research that I have been doing. Um one of the weirdest things that I saw that I was only able to get into a little bit with the book, but it were these letters that came from this uh, woman named Ruth Kushner, I believe, who rose to some prominence uh, during the mid-1970s as an advocate uh, for breast cancer awareness. Uh, she was actually also quite opposed to chemotherapy, if I remember correctly, and she had been uh, working with Jimmy Carter's administration at one point. Uh, so anyway, she had reached out to contact Lansdale, um, I think around the mid-1960s when he was in Vietnam. And I think her original explanation is because she was writing a book or a novel, I think, that was going to have a character sort of modeled around Lansdale. Uh, but anyway, as the correspondence went on, she effectively claimed that she had some kind of formula for waging a successful a counterinsurgency program in Vietnam. And she got a lot of support for this. There was actually like a letter that B.F. Skinner, for instance, the, the famous behavioral psychologist had written to Lansdale advocating her program. There were some other letters from these big poobahs from the University of uh, Utah, a couple of other major academics uh, in the behavioral sciences as well. So she got a lot of support for this. And this is just so unusual because she really didn't have any formal education in these kinds of fields. She was, uh, I think she had majored in journalism. She had taken uh, some behavioralist courses. I think it was George Washington University. It was one of the DC campuses. She was in Maryland. Um, but anyway, nothing like really extravagant or anything. But for whatever she was proposing to Lansdale, a lot of people thought it had merit. And the weird thing is, is that um, most of the papers that actually describe what she wanted to do were taken out of Lansdale's archives. Uh, there's the largest missing uh, collection that I saw in all of the files that I went through. I mean, I think it was something like 20 pages have been taken out. Um, incidentally, the only other person I saw where they had taken out some of these papers uh, were the uh, letters that Daniel Ellsberg had written to Lansdale. So still trying to figure out what the whole thing with Ruth Kushner was about, but it was it was definitely a weird one. You're muted, William. I can't hear you. Uh, still muted. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody went back through his his archives and took stuff out of there and, and shredded them. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, a lot of these archives are carefully curated, no doubt. That's why it's kind of amazing some of the stuff that you do end up finding in them. 
Um, and then just some of the other stuff too. Uh, the letters between Lansdale and Charles Bohannon were so fascinating. Uh, Bohannon was a, um, a Harvard-trained anthropologist who had worked for the Smithsonian prior to the Second World War studying the Navajo. Uh, he became a counterinsurgent in the Philippines during World War II, and he was really the guy who helped Lansdale, I think, effectively uh, weaponize metaphysics and spirituality for the purposes of psychological warfare. When these guys were in the Philippines, they did a lot of crazy stuff. I mean, one of the more uh, well-known anecdotes of that is that uh, they would have insurgents captured, drained of blood, hung around down in trees, and have puncture wounds put in their necks, so it looked like that vampires had drained them of blood effectively, which was apparently a big superstition in the Philippines. Uh, he would have all-seeing eyes painted on doors of suspected insurgents Insurgents. They would um, have confessions from insurgents that had been killed recorded, and then they would play them back through uh, speakers attached to airplanes from the sky to try to convince the villagers that the ghosts of these dead insurgents were haunting them. Just all kinds of like nutty stuff. And you always have sort of wondering, you know, just how seriously they took some of this. But uh, when you look at the papers, that Lonsdale and Bohannon were exchanging with one another. In the case of Bohannon especially, there were a lot of strange illustrations, some that weren't so strange per se, but a lot of like Masonic eyes and stuff like that. Bohannon would always sign his letters with uh, Charles Bohannon, 32nd degree Freemason, uh, Sons of the American Revolution, just a whole <laughs> litany of like the orders that he was a part of. Um, it just seemed like at a few other points, there were these other occult symbols that he just would like randomly put on these letters to Lansdale. So you do almost wonder in some senses, I mean, if these guys were a part of something that was even more mysterious than some of these Masonic groups, and they were almost using these sort of markings as codes or something like that. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, it's amazing. They, they're the, and the, one of the interesting things, one of the things I learned from your book is, one, he uh, Lansdale was an admin, so he understood kind of uh, commercial propaganda, right? You have to, yeah. you have to learn that, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, he grew up in L.A. too. I mean, I think he had appeared in a movie when he was still in high school. It's like an extra or something like that. But um, you could definitely see that he put those skills to good use later on because he essentially took over the production of uh, The Quiet American and had the uh, the main character modeled upon him. And essentially the whole content of the book changed. So uh, he definitely was aware of the value of entertainment. That's for sure. And I think it was your you know, asserting there, a lot of that did go back to his time as an ad man and the uh, years before the Second World War. Right, in San Francisco, no less. And so then he takes these techniques, but he also was very well networked. I mean, his patron is Nelson Rockefeller, for heaven's sake. He's like one of the founders of the whole behavioral modification program, MK Ultra, all that stuff. Is, it goes back to Nelson Rockefeller and Dulles. And he's friends with Dulles, too. So Nansdale is not some independent... Kind of operator and you you show you have a section called gremlins about all the people that he nurtured or was over uh mentored or something like that right yeah i mean a lot of the different people that he worked with in the dod and so forth and there were quite a few of them um i think one of the most significant is a guy a lot of people don't hear of uh, his name was general edwin black not the author of ibm and the holocaust uh, very different Edwin Black, uh, but this guy had just an absolutely insane career, uh, both during his time in the military and even probably more so after he retired. Um, so he, he retires as a general, I think around 70, 71. Uh, he ends up uh, writing to Lansdale in 1976, uh, informing him that he had been offered a job uh, at an Australian bank, a based bank. Um, that was being run by a former Green Beret, and he wanted to know if Lansdale uh, had ever encountered Mr. Michael Hand while he was in Vietnam and if he could vouch for him, because he seemed like a wonderful guy. Of course, the uh, the bank that he was referring to was Nugent Hand, uh, which collapsed around 1980, and that was eventually revealed to have been a full-blown CIA front. Black uh, was their Hawaii representative. And then later on in 1983, another bank that Black was connected to collapsed in Hawaii. 
that was also implicated in uh, collaborating with the CIA, probably in funneling drug money for arms and all this kind of good stuff. Um, it collapsed not long after Lansdale had personally gone to spend Christmas 1983 with Black in Hawaii, which was also interesting. Um, but going back to Black's actual time in the military, one of the most insane things I uncovered uh, was a declassified FBI document when my mates had sent me. And it went into what appears to have been uh, an early version of the Artichoke Committee, which was the uh, you know, the committee that oversaw Project Artichoke that had previously blamed Bluebird. This document was from 1949 and appears to have been an early meeting for this committee when Bluebird was still in effect. It was a document about psychological warfare with the FBI had been sitting in. And in the midst of this, they go into a full-blown description of narco-hypnosis about how on the one hand they can create an alternate personality, and then on the other hand, they can also use these techniques to implant false memories in the subject. So General Black is the guy heading this committee, and the CIA uh, representative is another interesting guy. This is a dude called Cleve Baxter. He's most well known in New Age circles for claiming that he could talk to house plants with a polygraph. They actually wrote this in the 70s. Um, but anyway, before he was doing that, he was a real specialist for narco-hypnosis uh, for the CIA and the military. Um, and then on top of that, this Bluebird Committee that Black was a part of was part of a broader uh, group. I can't, there's so many alphabet agencies. I can't remember what this was called at the time. But yeah, and you actually had to include like an inch in your intro all of the acronyms. That yes, the yes, because there were so many of them, and they, they're almost as similar to each other, very similar to each other. And to and to add to that, you can listen to uh, Stephen on Tinfoil Hat because he did a full show. I think with Sam Tripoli on Artichoke, right? Just recently. yeah, yeah. Just I haven't listened to it yet. I didn't but, want to listen to it. But at the top of the pinnacle for this uh, group that um, uh, Black was involved with was Vannevar Bush. And this is the guy that's really big in a lot of the Majestic 12 UFO mythology. Uh, this kind of goes back to the Smith memo that came out of Canada in the early 1950s that claimed that Bush was a part of the leading UFO group that was operating within the U.S. security state. And this is interesting because I had really been intrigued by the possibility that some of these guys were connected to Artichoke for a lot of years. Um, it's kind of known now that uh, one of Bush's major aide-de-camps in the National Defense Research Council, H. Marshall Chadwell, went on to effectively head Artichoke for a time when he was with the CIA. And also, this is around the same time that he's doing the Robertson panel, which was big in advocating psychological warfare to address the UFO situation. So in finding Bush connected to this uh, at very early onset of Bluebird, along with these guys like Edward Black and Cleve Baxter, it seems clear that these so-called UFO working groups and so forth were connected to these behavioral modification programs from pretty much the very beginning. And it raises a lot of interesting and disturbing questions as to why exactly this would be the case. Um, but suffice to say, when you look at the whole process of narco-hypnosis, they developed the whole procedure for it that they called the artichoke treatment. Uh, basically, they injected people with a cocktail consisting of LSD and I think it was metrozonin or something like that. It's essentially a substance that puts you into uncontrollable convulsions, like you have to be strapped into a chair because you're, you know, so you're tripping balls you're going into these uncontrollable convulsions and sometimes even then they would start zapping you with the electro uh with the um what was it the machine for the electroshock therapy so and they did this to just hundreds probably thousands of people prisoners pow's mental patients and this was a decade or i mean almost a decade before even cameron's experiments started so the question kind of becomes like, why did they have to keep doing this, especially when in theory it wasn't able, it didn't work for its stated purpose, i.e. to induce amnesia in subjects or whatever else they claimed for the specific purpose. But they kept doing it on a massive scale, even wow. though they had the so-called disposal program problem for this and all this other stuff. So, yeah, that begs the question, why? <laughs> it's crazy. And it reminds me of Whitey Bulger. Like he said his experiences being tested on haunted him the rest of his life he, he was in alcatraz so he's in the bay area well he's he in was, san francisco 
Actually, he was in the Atlanta. It's really interesting you break that up because he was in the Atlanta prison for a time. And that was one of the spots where they did these procedures at. Uh, Bolger was subjected to it. Another guy who was at the same prison uh, was one of the guys who was probably uh, a murderer of Frank Olson, the guy who supposedly committed oh, wow. suicide by jumping out of a window. But he was a French uh, mafia guy. I think it was the Crescian Brotherhood who had been subjected to this procedure. And then there was another guy, a another mafia hitman who was active in Kentucky. I can't remember his name, but I mean, he served in the same prison and there the same medical procedures. So oh, that's yeah, amazing. It's interesting that yeah, you find a lot of these violent criminal types who all went through that same kind of technique in Atlanta. I mean, uh, Whitey Bulger was a serial killer. I mean, I think he killed, you know, 19. I mean, if they were trying to modify his behavior into being a cold-blooded killer, they did it. You know, I don't know if that was their intent, but yeah. Wow. I mean, I don't know what he was like before uh, jail or the procedure, but afterwards... Yeah, he, I think they would just. I think there was a couple killings where he just did it just out of like pure malice, <clears throat> if I remember correctly. But that's a whole other story. But so these like uh, behavior modification type things, artichoke, bluebird, started very early. MK Ultra officially started fifty three, right? So yeah, fifty three. I think you talk about pelican too. I'd never heard of pelican or some of these other ones. Like total, like this is Buharich, and so there's a tie in between behavior modification. And Psy Research, just like your title, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, again, it seems like a lot of the parapsychology stuff went back to pretty much the very beginning of a lot of uh, the stuff with Artichoke and Bluebird. I mean, Puharic had long claimed that he had started working for the National Security State for a Navy program called uh, Penguin in 1947. Nobody's ever found a program called Penguin to exist. As I kind of state in the book, there was a Navy program called Pelican that did start in 1947. It seems to jive with what Puharic claimed that he got started in. And there's some really disturbing implications to that because Pelican was basically like a full-blown clockwork orange type procedure where guys were strapped into chairs, their eyes were clamped open, and they were drugged and shown these ultra-violent videos um, in theory to make them into more effective killers. This was uh, supposedly initiated for people that were going into special operations forces, Navy SEALs, that kind of stuff. So again, it's uh, really nutty that this is effectively the program that Pew Horick was claiming uh, where he got his start in. And then, of course, Artichoke had later uh, investigated some of his uh, parapsychology stuff that seemed to have been tied into also implanting false memories, hypnosis. Just, uh, it kind of went into this sort of courier program that I think that they were trying to develop, which was, again, a really odd thing. But it seems like it was fairly common for the CIA to have messages delivered verbally during the 50s and 60s. And this would usually be managed by hypnotizing a courier and planning the message while they were in hypnotic state and then bringing them out of it. And there was essentially like a code word that could be initiated when they got to where they were going so that the message could be retrieved, if you will. Um, which again was something I thought that was nuts, but in uh, Dick Russell's book, The Man Who Knows Too Much, his uh, source, uh, Richard Case Negley, you know, kind of nonchalantly mentions that that was done to him while he was in the CIA, and it was a pretty standard procedure for a lot of this. Wow, that's amazing. Gosh. It goes so far back. I mean, it's really just post-war. And even the hypnosis uh, research predates World War II as well. A lot of people may not know that. So these these tests and interests are going around uh, for a long time, and a lot of people were tortured. A lot of people got hurt, like uh, hurt pretty bad. But it's just it's amazing. And, and I think that the the theme of your book is like these this psychological operation that Lansdale's doing these these creating myths and things like that. That's kind of seeping back over into American culture right through these kind of uh, mytho mythological stories about UFOs and things like that. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think that uh, there was a very consorted effort to really try to shape alternative culture, quote unquote, with a lot of these techniques. And I mean, yeah, the UFO field was a big one that was targeted. But I mean, also even a lot of the conspiracy circles. I mean, the John Birch Society, I would say, was very much a psychological operation um, from very much the beginning. Uh, and even in that case, too, I mean, it gets into some very uh, interesting things with the Kennedy assassination, because the original 
you know, Kennedy conspiracy theory was that he was actually killed by the communists, that Oswald had been an agent of the Soviet Union or Cuba, and they were actually directing this. And this was a big deal uh, in 64 uh, and was one of the factors that actually had spurred the Watergate Commission or excuse me, Freudian slip, uh, the JFK assassination. Review. Right, the Warren Commission. Yeah, the Warren Commission. Yes, thank you. Because it was, you know, again, people don't really get this, but the Birch Society was at the peak of its influence in this time frame. And they were really pushing this narrative. And there actually does seem to have been uh, some very real concern that this could push the U.S. into a nuclear exchange with the Soviets. And this is, again, kind of coming against the backdrop, but there's really a full court press against the Birch Society. I mean, you can kind of see that in everything from LBJ's Daisy ad campaign to uh, Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, right? I mean, Jack D. Ripper, his whole obsession with fluoride and how that's like a communist plot, you know, to, um, you know, to turn the U.S. into pacifists. I mean, that's basically taken straight out of Bircher literature from that uh, particular time frame. And um, I firmly believe Kubrick had insider knowledge and was being fed things by the Kennedy administration. So I wouldn't be surprised. I think they influenced Seven Days in May, too. I yeah, mean, I know they influenced it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, Kubrick was a part of uh, a circle of filmmakers around Kirk Douglas that also included John Frankenheimer, Burt Lancaster. So there's some really interesting movies that these people were doing around them. Strange Love was one. Seven Days in May was one. The Manchurian Candidate was another. Seconds was another. Um, but yeah, there was uh, some fascinating stuff that was coming out. And it's kind of why I find that whole time frame in the early 60s to be so curious, because you can almost see a full-blown psychological war being conducted conducted by different elements of the national security state, where you kind of have the Kennedy administration, parts of the CIA working through Hollywood, through Kurt Douglas, through Kubrick, through Frankenheimer. And then conversely, you have like the military working through the John Birch Society, through early ufology, because from the very beginning, you know, there's this whole narrative that um, we have this advanced species that's uh, flown across the galaxy to tell us that we have to, you know, confront the Soviets and that uh, the Jews really are the ultimate person personification of pure evil in the known universe, uh, which actually happens way more in channel communications than anyone would really believe. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And it's just incredible. I mean, like even in Strangelove, they had to delay the release because of the assassination. Yeah, it was supposed Kennedy. to come out in the, uh, the day Kennedy was assassinated, actually, November 22nd, 1963. I mean, the timing is just incredible. And that guy's in LeMay. I think it's the... Um, not Ripper, uh, the other character, George C. Scott character. I can't remember his name, but they deliberately based him on Curtis LeMay. Yeah. All, yeah. Yeah. General Walker was another one that was based uh, that I think actually Ripper was a composite of LeMay and uh, General Walker. You can also see a bit of uh, LeMay in the George C. Scott character. But yeah, some of the stuff in that movie is just so disturbing when you understand what's going on. I mean, Kennedy actually went to this uh, briefing that I get into in the book uh, because the Pentagon was obsessed with launching a preemptive nuclear strike against the Soviet Union towards the end of 1963. So they're making the pitch to Kennedy in this national security meeting. And then Kennedy asks at the end of it, well, how many uh, American casualties would we be looking at even if we taught the Soviet Union totally unaware? And the response was, eh, you know, maybe 15, 20 million tops. <laughs> it's pretty much verbatim what George C. Scott says, Dr. Strange. Mr. Right. President, I'm not saying we won't get our hair most, but 10 to 15 million dead tops, you know. Oh, it's incredible. That's the way these guys thought. It was Lemnitzer, I think, was the other crazy. Yeah, these Lemnitzer. guys were all unhinged. And I think you talked to Bennett. I think you did some research into Walker, and he's like a cross-dressing, like, secret homosexual or something weird about him. Like, they were just, it was literally strange love. Like, they were just really crazy, creepy people, man. It's unbelievable. And then LeMay and Lansdale, the, uh, Lansdale's ahead of Mongoose, right? And then those two guys are allegedly at the site of in Dallas, right? Uh, November 22nd, 1963. Well, the guy who really pushed that narrative was L. Fletcher Prouty, who actually was one of Lansdale's former underlings uh, when he was essentially running uh, what we would now think of as the Special Operations Command. Uh, but that kind of begs the question if that in and of itself was a bit of psychological warfare. Because again, Lansdale was really aware of himself as a public figure. Of course, the ugly American, the main character, was based on him, as I'd sort of mentioned before. He yeah, had that was had... his nickname, too. That was his nickname. 
you know, he had had the Quiet American redone to have the uh, in the movie version have the main character based on him as well. So I kind of feel like after Lansdale's uh, official career had run its course, you know, he almost went full blown Darth Vader and kind of cultivated this image of this, you know, sort of dark, shadowy figure. In a sense, you can kind of see parallels to that with Michael Aquino, who was also an Army psychological warfare officer. And again, you know, going on TV talk shows and the Dracula cape and the plug eyebrows and that just seems like a very Lansdale-esque uh, approach to this whole field. Uh, certainly I don't think Lansdale was above being notorious and might even have enjoyed it in a certain sense. Yeah I think you're right and I mean the connections he had were just incredible. I had no idea the drug uh, running element to him, him talking to McCoy right, Alfred McCoy, the politics of heroin, Southeast yeah. Asia. Well, that was another insane thing because it turned out that Lansdale was actually McCoy's main source initially in finding out that the CIA was trafficking drugs in Laos. I mean, Lansdale more or less told McCoy where to go in Laos to see the CIA planes ferrying the heroin out. Wow. So again, it's kind of like, why was he doing this? He had battles within the whole structure, though. Like you said, that they, there were there were I mean, during the Church Commission, he was battling with people about releasing certain information it seemed like so well, maybe he that's why he told exposed the whole drug running thing well i mean it's interesting because he actually almost seems like he set the cia up with that because this goes back into the mongoose time frame right and this is when william k harvey was talking about uh using the mafia to assassinate castro and Lansdale actually wrote this down in documents that were being passed around in the national security circles, which everybody was freaking out about. Because, again, even though this stuff is classified, you know, you never put an assassination into written word. But he did it anyway. And this is a guy who, you know, was keenly aware of the implications of security. I mean, he kept an airtight security on his teams when he was in the field and so forth. So he almost surely did this deliberately because he wanted somebody to see that eventually. So it's kind of another fascinating thing about Lansdale that he was engaged in these kinds of intrigues. And he also seems to have been playing a long game with some of this stuff. Yeah, very long game. These guys do play a long game. I mean, even Nugan Hand is incredible. I did a show on Nugan Hand. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the notes. But that story of the Nugan Hand Bank is so bizarre. So Nugan gets shot in, I think, Australia and disappears. And the guy that I researched found him in Idaho under a yeah. name. Like, he's literally was still alive. He literally did some intel thing. Colby was on the board. Yeah. And then Colby disappears and dies in, like, an SFK death. He literally goes, I'm going to run out for a row, disappears, and then is found dead in water seven, eight days later, something like that. It's textbook SFK type stuff. It's rude. I mean, so the bleed over from intel into serial killing, I think, is uh, incredible in my opinion. But, yeah. Well, that's, de that's definitely something that I'm going to be looking at a lot more in the second book, um, because I think that that's really going to be a big thing is kind of unpacking all the stuff with the serial killers and also how that has been a sort of means of psychological warfare. Um, because this is sort of something I picked up going back and looking at the Jack the Ripper killings. Because, I mean, once all is said and done, you know, we don't know if Jack the Ripper actually killed the five people he's credited with killing, if he killed more people than that, if he killed less people than that, if there were two killers, if there were five separate killers for each death, et cetera, et cetera. What we can say for certain is that Jack the Ripper was a character that the British media created in the papers at the time. And there were probably political intrigues behind this. I mean, a lot of the early Ripper villains were potential victims, were potentially linked to um, Jewish conspiracy theories. Of course, one of the early nicknames uh, for the Ripper was Leather Apron. Uh, of course, we all know about the Three Jews reference that was found at one of the murders. They also let, The Ripper also left one of the bodies outside of the Jewish Socialist League. So this is kind of playing out in the UK at 1888. Um, at a time when the Okrana, the uh, Soviet secret police, is very active there. Of course, a lot of people think that the Okrana was who was ultimately behind the learned protocols of the elders of Zion. So when you sort of look at some of the things that were going on between Russia and the UK, you could maybe see how maybe the Russians wanted to create anti-Semitic riots in the UK with some of these killings, and the British press was being used to try to change the narrative on that. And this would start to play into a lot of the other storied serial killers 
one of the big reasons why we remember the Black Dahlia Avenger and the Zodiac and the Son of Sam so distinctly is because they all wrote letters to the press. They basically created a whole narrative and a character for themselves in the media. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. And if anything, I think that this is actually a sort of performance art that various groups have embraced over the years as a part of these ritualistic killings, which is something that I'm really uh, excited to explore. I guess if excited is the right word for this. No, that's fascinating. <laughs> it's really interesting. I wouldn't put it past the Okrana, but have you ever looked at Dulles's connection to exposing the um, origins of the Protocols of Zion? He was in Turkey at the time. I think he was involved in that. Something I have to go back and look at. But I think that he was on it like this is a this is a psyop. But it shows that these psychological operations, whether they're called that or not, predate even Lansdale, right? They predate the Oh century. yeah. Well, I mean, God, they probably go back to at least the Roman Empire. I mean, if not further back than that. But yeah, yeah I mean, it was always kind of a problem trying to find like an appropriate place to start. But uh, ultimately, I think in the second book, we're going to go back and look at the modern origins, which I think really is in Rosicrucianism, which uh, wow. does raise a lot of intriguing possibilities as to how that's played out in the modern era. And your view of the Rosicrucians is that it's kind of a, a psychological operation to a certain extent. Is that right? Yeah, I think it was totally a game for the curious, effectively, um, in a sense. And that's basically what QAnon was as well. So Right. And it is kind of like that. Like, there's a mystery of where the uh, Rosicrucian texts come up with who's Christian Rosenkreutz. Like, it's a fake name. It's almost like the guy who created Bitcoin or something. Like, nobody knows yeah, who exactly. Satoshi is or whatever. And it effectively, you know, with the original Rosicrucian manifestos, the Fuhrer around it, I mean, it did essentially create a movement. I mean, there was Freemasonry before then, but this was not very much in terms of speculative masonry. I mean, really, the only major secret orders from this time were like the Jesuits and those kinds of groups. Um, but in the aftermath of those manifestos, that's when you start seeing speculative masonry springing up everywhere. It's when you start seeing all these other secret societies springing up. So, yeah, I mean, effectively, it's a kind of LARP that turned into a movement. And you can see the same thing in a lot of senses with QAnon as well. Oh, no doubt. It's very powerful. Whoever did QAnon did a great job. Like, yeah, I marvel at it, man. That's a really, that's a really great psychological operation. Because I even talk to people and they say, I don't care if it's not true. I choose to believe it. So it's almost <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like, like it's so it's so powerful that people are just like, I don't even care. I, I want to believe these are blood, blood drinking. Um you know, lunatics. I want to just show, I'll just show you the, uh, the, but before we go, the Masonic building on oh, California yeah, Street. Good. Yeah. So you oh, can kind wow. of see it here. So this is the entrance. It takes up this mm -hmm. whole corner. This is the fair mile. There's the, there's the church, Grace Cathedral Church, but it takes up this whole corner. Wow. Here. And you can see the Boaz and Jachin, uh statuary or whatever pillars right here that you walk in. But it is amazing. Like, you kind of keep there's another entrance here and you just see like the nice i guess what would they call this uh style of architecture but i think this is the the fairmont is here it's it's this tall one over here but uh, this is the pacific and union club this is like super nice this is the one i was telling you about that nobody yeah. talks about and then down this street is um the bohemian club Let's see if I can nice nice it's like battery yeah, no. So you could literally just walk this if you do if you can get down. I think it's on battery. Oh, have you That's seen uh, the George Washington Masonic Memorial uh, National Memorial in DC? Yeah, no, it's incredible. I really, it's really something else. It also yes, has. It's the also the only. I think it's the only building in the United States with an elevator that goes sideways. Oh wow, That's amazing. And it has the two sphinxes, right? The sphinxes are. To know, to will, to dare, and be silent. Oh, no, the Sphinxes are outside the Scottish, right? The George Washington okay, right. That's it's actually it's in Alexandria. It's actually almost more of like a uh, ziggurat or something like oh, that. Oh, oh, yeah, no, I think no, I've seen that too. Yeah, no, it's really impressive. So this is the entrance into the Bohemian Club, and you can see. I don't know if this will go in, but that's the spiders weaving. Don't weave here with the owl. Right? Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, so you this is it. It's nice. Look at how big it is. Like this is a secret club, man. It's amazing. So you can see it from right here. Oh, the picture is not very good. But it's like a four-story club. And this is where they take the statue of the guy who has the sign of silence. They take it out every year and deliver it to the Bohemian Grove. 
<laughs> and then this is the uh, Olympic Club. This is the other club right here. Oh, so it's like right next to the Bohemian. Oh, nice. It's nice. literally adjoining it. Yeah. I don't know if there's even a doorway in between these two, but. And that's yeah, kind of because the Olympic Club, I take it, is more of a Catholic club than right. Like it's kind of a. I don't know. I don't think. I feel like what happened is San Francisco's elite were all uh, became Italians. There are a lot. There's a heavy <laughs> Italian influence. I mean, I think that they were all kind of wasps at one point, and then like it was Moscone and Aliotto. And so they kind of just became the kind of uh, elite of San Francisco to a certain extent and kind of morphed with their, or melded themselves in. So I think the Ignatius Catholic thing is there, but I don't think that the, the, the um, Olympic club is Catholic. I don't think it's, I don't think it's actually sectarian in any way, shape or form. Okay. But I don't know. I, I have to look into that stuff, but yeah, I'll do it. I should do a San Francisco walk. It's pretty something else. Anyway, we are at the 50-minute mark here, Steve. Uh, where can people – anything you like to add or anything I missed, or how would you like to wrap this up? I mean, there's a lot of great research in this book, guys. Check it out. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, it's uh, first in a uh, planned trilogy, like you were saying, and it's going to cover a lot of insane stuff, especially the serial killer thing. But you got to to understand, uh, you got to start with the first book, and trust me, there's a lot of juicy revelations in it as well. Gosh, we didn't even get all the stuff with Bert Snyder. But um, anyway, for those of you unaware, Hollywood producer, the uh, Peter Fonda character in The Limey is based on him. So that'll maybe give you some hints about Bert. Uh, but anyway, the book's available at Amazon and also at the Farm's official store for the uh, digital version, which is uh, the farmpodcast.store. That's uh, all one word, the farmpodcast.store. And then also I do the Farm uh, podcast, obviously, which you've got four free episodes out each month. Each one comes out on the Monday or the first Monday of each week. And um, also for the Patreon, you get two additional full-length episodes on the lowest tier and on the upper tier, you get that, Zoom meetings, all kinds of other stuff. I actually do quite a bit of uh, articles on these weird places that I do across the country with photos and whatnot. So you get a bit of the esoteric history of the American architecture and landscape, just all kinds of insane stuff. So anyway, definitely, uh, if you're interested in what you've heard here today, consider checking out some of those. Yeah, I'll put links to all that in the show notes. And you've posted a lot of your stuff, like doing talks, visiting the architecture on Twitter, because I've seen them on your feed. So people can go to your Twitter, too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, Twitter. I think it's uh, Recluse S9 on there uh, for the Twitter feed. Um, yeah, that's referenced. So I think I saw a picture of you at the Hoover. I mean, you posted something at Hoover. I, I didn't know that you were, that was the something you were putting into this book, so that was kind of cool to see the book pop up after you doing that research and the research in the book. And there's a lot of footnotes in the book. So you can see the books that he's reading and a lot of the stuff just on the behavior modification is fascinating, but the overlap with all this stuff really kind of brings the kind of secret underground history of that time to, to the, the front of your mind, like to consciousness, because it's really important stuff. So I highly recommend this book. Again, the full title is the art, the secret history of cyborg conspiratainment and the shattering of reality and the author is recluse or steven snyder so steven thanks so much for your time thank you very much for having me on sir all right take care. stay there stay there stay there okay.